Shulk Yates is a self-proclaimed towering giant of the energy business. After graduating magnum cum laude, laude daude, we like to party from Rice University with a BA in political science and plenty of BS. He later ran product design for Apple where Steve Jobs proclaimed him so valuable that if Chuck left, I'd be reduced to wearing nothing but black turtlenecks for all time. Chuck joined the Houston office of Stevens Incorporated, the Little Rock, Arkansas Investment Bank, where he strove to do well, but not well enough to get promoted to Little Rock. After figuring out he was a really crappy investment banker, he moved on to the principal side of business, where he fared not much better. But as everyone who has spent more than 30 seconds with Chuck knows, he did the legendary Silver Heel deal. Interestingly enough, Chuck once won a bet from Superman where the loser had to wear his underwear on the outside of his clothes. Despite all of these achievements, in the post-COVID spring of 2020, Chuck was shit-canned from his gig as a managing partner. It did make Wall Street Journal, so at least he had that going for him. Another good story I don't think a lot of EFT is aware of because it happened relatively early in the lifetime of EFT, whatever that is, uh, is the origin of New Bit Friday with scaling, um, which is the funniest thing on EFT, hands down. And I think the origin story is even funnier, frankly. So, so long story short, you know, Scaling always had Mr. Scaling, uh, which we are all aware of. And, and obviously, New Bit Friday comes from his other account, uh, Mrs. Scaling. But the, the, the way that other account came to be was completely accidental. And really, what happened was Mr. Scaling um, you know, was kind of firing bombs like he always does. And he kind of went a little astray um, and, and ventured into Greenpeace's feed. And there was this video of Greenpeace protesters blocking traffic on um, that bridge. It's over the Houston Ship Channel. I can't remember its name. Um, and so long story short, there's a bunch of Greenpeace protesters blocking traffic in Houston. And Skilling sees this video. They post it, like, all, all proud of how they're shutting down traffic in Houston. And Skilling says something to the effect of, you know, why don't you just go jump off that bridge? And, <laughs> and, and so, I mean, I don't know about you, Chuck. I mean, Houston traffic's pretty bad. I feel like telling someone who's holding traffic up in Houston that they should go jump off a bridge is pretty tame. Um, but, you know, whenever you do it on Greenpeace's account, I mean, it's Snowflake Central, right? So, <laughs> long story short, he gets, he gets flagged like 30 times and his account gets disabled. And so long. So, you know, he DM'd me immediately after it happened, like, shit, I just lost my account. And I was like, and so it kind of instigated this whole uh, free scaling kind of movement. And it was kind of like, you know, free Ferris Bueller or whatever. And he set up Mrs. Scaling as his ultimate account and, and started basically fresh and, and built all these followers. And then at some point in the next couple of months, Mr. Scaling was reinstated. So he's got these two accounts. He doesn't know what to do with, with the extra account. And he has this flash of brilliance. Um, which, you know, we all appreciate today to, to create new Big Friday out of it. So, you know, 
I don't think many people in EFT have a lot to thank Greenpeace for, but that may be one that we should all throw a ball at Greenpeace. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to episode five of Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Tonight in the house, the man who needs no introduction, Energy Freaking Cynic. Energy Cynic, I would give your background. I would say who you are, introduce you, but I have no clue. So welcome in. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right into this. I mean, you are the big dog on Energy Finance Twitter. In fact, I was DMing with some of the folks earlier and Quick Draw, Quick Draw Capital actually said you are the number one draw on Energy Finance Twitter, the whole reason he's here. So tell me about Energy Finance Twitter. How'd you get involved? What does it mean to you? And thanks for that compliment, Quick Draw. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of great accounts on EFT. Um, I got involved, I guess, early in EFT's history, but really followed OMG Credit, who pulled me in um, a couple of years ago. I was I was curious uh, on on Twitter. There are a couple of things that he had posted that pulled me in, and then I just started getting into it and tweeting. And before you know it. Um, you know, started getting follows and followed more people and, and scaling, I think was there before me and he was already kind of firing away. So I just jumped on the bandwagon and before you know it, this thing kind of snowballed into what it is today. So it's been a great, great ride, a lot of fun, a lot of great talents on EFT today. It's, it's truly remarkable how many people have joined. So I think, uh, any crown that any of us have is just, there's, there's so much more talent in the industry today, if we can call EFT an industry. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a fun ride. Now you've been great. You're, you're hysterical. You're really funny. I love reading your stuff. You've taken numerous shots at me, but, uh, we'll go, uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll let bygones be got bygones. But that being said, you've always been, uh, been fair. What are some of the funny things that have happened to you on Twitter, maybe that we're not able to read? Because obviously all of us follow you. We all see your funny tweets. Is there is there funny stuff going on outside of here that uh, that we need to know about? There's a lot, yeah. I mean, I think some of the funniest things that have happened to me on EFT have taken place behind the scenes where most people can't see them. Um, you know, there's several good stories. I'll share a few of them. Uh, you know, everything from interesting people who end up following you um to stories you know of, of, of how the tweets affect uh different organizations and in terms of some of the follows we've gotten i know some of the big accounts have also gotten the same ones and and the best ones are ones that are clearly uh either you know ceos who are using their wives or their daughters accounts to follow us um, and, you know, one, for example, is a, all of a sudden I get a follow from, from, you know, kind of a last name that looks very familiar, um, but with a female name attached to it and start digging into it a little bit more. And before you know it, you're looking at their follows. And in this case, it was a bunch of high society furnishing, interior design follows plus EFT. So 
it was pretty clear that either this was a, a meld account or um, you know one of the, one of the CEO's wives, and you know the CEO is is, is kind of uh, you know the target of a lot of criticism on EFT. You know, over the years, it's been a long time. Okay, okay, okay. I gotta ask: Are you gonna give up the name? Oh man, um, I'll just say Permian based company and leave it at that and everyone can put one and two together and okay okay uh, but i'll leave it to people's imaginations i don't want to call anyone out so yeah but it's just funny because this this person's following you and there's all this kind of fire and brimstone going left and right um and then all of a sudden the same individual is liking your other tweets so you can start start, <laughs> riffing, start riffing on you know, whatever, you know, it's politics or, or other companies. And uh, Mrs. Permian, all of a sudden, is, is just kind of just lighting you up. So, it, you know, it's either the CEO through, through his wife's account, or, or maybe his wife is just like, I've suspected he's been a capital destroyer my entire marriage. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> finally feels like she has an outlet herself. So, that one was pretty funny. Um, that so that's awesome. So when um, when actually I got the boot from Kane and you know Twitter kind of had their forty eight seventy two hour firestorm. Someone pointed out that my son Charlie was going on liking tweets about me that were making fun of me. So uh, I feel somewhat sympathetic. Now, well, did the, did the wife ever actually like a tweet disparaging their husband? I don't remember, um, but it's quite possible because some of those tweets were very popular. <laughs> get a lot of likes. <laughs> people, she might have snuck in there. Um, but uh, it's funny too that you mentioned kids because um, you know I think teenage daughters' Twitter accounts are also a, a favorite of uh, of different people trying to like you know kind of see what's going on on EFT. And one another funny story is, and some people on EFT may remember this. There was a period of time early this year when you know, a certain private equity firm was catching some heats and, and people were going back and forth and I may or may not have been involved in some of those tweets. And all of a sudden, <laughs> this account shows up and I forget the handle exactly, but I think it was like Jojo Siwa 69. <laughs> it was something really like and it's like, wow, Jojo Siwa 69, you know a lot about this, you know, large multi-billion dollar private equity fund. That's interesting. And same story, you know, you go to the follows and it's teen, you know, boy bands and tween shit and EFT. <laughs> so it's the same <laughs> dynamic. And uh, this particular person just kind of went on and on and on and on. So, you know, there's definitely, I, I think that's, uh, to me, that's just hilarious. And there's all these kind of threads running underneath EFT and all these inflammatory tweets and, and tweets kind of calling out bad activity and then behind the scenes. And we all know, based at, at this point, based on friends of ours who are in this industry, that everyone's kind of checking it out, right, at this point. And so, um, so that's some of the stuff we see. Last one I'll, I'll leave you to, and this one happened in the DM. So um, it's particularly uh, you know, funny to me that I figured I'd share. Same kind of timeline, a few months ago, another CEO, you know, so I put a tweet out there, and, and it wasn't even that crazy i think i said something like hey i heard something's going down at x company what's up you know so there's just like a question and before i know it there's, there's 40 comments that are just going off on you know all these different events at this company and apparently the ceo's 
uh, particularly detested out there. So this is happening, and I didn't really think much of it. I was like, yeah, that kind of got, you know, a little dark, a little fast, and didn't mean for that to happen. But whatever, you know, I you know, let people talk. And, and then later in the, in the day, so I think it was in the morning that that went out. Later in the day, I get this DM from someone at the company. And they said, hey, you know, this, this whole, like, tweet chain caught the attention of a, you know, a certain someone at this company. And, and he asked his executive assistant to print out every tweet to study them. So no I'm, just, I'm just sitting there imagining some poor, you know, executive assistant in their mid-50s, name's probably Nancy, and the CEO walks up and is like, can you print off all these tweets? And so she's got to figure out Twitter. She's going through these tweets. She prints them out for him. And from what I, from what I heard through the DM, you know, he spent spend an evening studying them, you know, probably having a glass of bourbon trying to figure out, like, who is Frack Slap? You know, who is Nimble <laughs> Fatty? Who are these people? Um, and With- and to, to this day, I'm not convinced that, uh, that that executive assistant in her mid-50s probably didn't just, you know, get an anonymous account and just continue on EFT. Who, who knows? Uh, there's a lot of angst at that company, apparently. Oh, that's hysterical. So... While we're talking funny, I've got to give you your props on this, but it's going to lead to a, to to a real question. But so, Kane gives me the boot. Talking about earlier, forty eight, seventy two hours of you know Twitter firestorm going on. And what was so funny about it is, you know, I'm friends with Jewel. I think everybody knows that. And uh, anyway, I was screenshotting each one of the tweets that mentioned her because people were, you know, saying things like, you know, oh, we would have thought you and Kane, you were meant for me. And, you know, just spoofing on that. Um, But anyway, I was sending tweets to her, screenshotting them. And she was just like, good God, Chuck, find something better to do. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to find something for you to occupy your time besides social media. Um. And uh, anyway, so she jumped on Twitter and actually tweeted back to somebody's tweet. I don't know who it was, but tweeted back, hey, guys, this is funny, but you can stop. Only I get to make fun of Chuck. And you had the best tweet because you responded to that tweet saying there are two people in energy finance Twitter. Number one, those who are shocked that Jules actually acknowledging energy finance Twitter. And then number two, the second group, people that are actually creepy Jewel stalkers. And then you said the Venn diagram is Chuck Yates. (laughs) So so that was, that was funny, but, but, and, and in all seriousness, during all that, the firestorm energy finance Twitter was great to me. I mean, everybody was funny. They were fair. I think your other good one was today I'm stumbling around drunk in my torn jeans in honor of Chuck Yates. But let me ask you this. In all seriousness, is it fair to be anonymous on Twitter and actually uh, throw out the barbs you do? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Obviously, I think it's fair uh, sitting where I'm sitting, but um, yeah, I think the whole industry is built for promotion, right? And so you walk around all day long, and, and you go to meetings, and you, you just you just participate in the industry, and it's nonstop promotion, and there's no check on it, 
right? There's equity research and there's IR decks and there's, uh, you know, employees obviously can't speak out. And so there's just this ecosystem that makes it very difficult for brutal honesty to get out there. And what I think is so great about anonymous Twitter is that it's pure, right? I mean, it's, it's a direct kind of channel uh, for honesty and, and, and you know, forthright appraisal of some actions of different you know, participants in our industry. And I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I think it, it, um, it provokes thought and, and, and brings a lot, of, a lot of topics that are in the shadows to the forefront. So yeah, no, I think, I think it has its downsides, but I think anonymous Twitter um, in its pure form um, can be a benefit. It can go too far. <laughs> We've all seen it go way too far. Um, and I think it, it needs to check itself and it does check itself. And I think actually having the blend of anonymous and non-anonymous accounts like you and, and others um, probably, you know, acts as a regulatory mechanism a little bit on the really hard kind of stuff that, that sometimes gets a little too, too, uh, too dark and, and, and too difficult. So no, I think it's, I think it's a good thing, um, but not without its downsides that we need to manage. You know, and and what I'll go ahead and say is I actually agree with that. I do think the information flow is important. I have seen that it self-regulates. I mean, I've had some moments where some things have been said and, you know, bomber will jump in and defend me or the like. And so uh, I, I think it's a good thing. I can uh, I can uh, I can definitely buy off on that. And, and at the end of the day, I will again say. EFT's always been really fair to me. Yeah, I think, and I think, you know, with you in particular, everyone knows Chuck Gates can take a joke. Um, and so there's a element of that, uh, if, if you've ever been in the crosshairs uh, from me or others. Um, and, and even if people can't, you know, there's always, I think people, people are not assholes. I mean, there, there are assholes everywhere, but um, if you, if I said something and you DM me and said, hey, man, that was mean or I didn't like that, I'll take it down. And, 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 and I've seen people do that a dozen times. So, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it's, it's a good place. I think it's generally good natured. Everyone's here to learn. Everyone's here to have a good time. Uh, and everyone's here to, to you know, grow and, and make our energy community better in this weird, twisted way that we've all kind of stumbled upon uh, to do that. And I think Chuck having you on EFT now is helpful in this regard. Um, and I think a lot, another reason why people are jumping into EFT is like there is a lack of leadership in our industry, right? Like you look around and this is all taking place and I don't know about you, but like, I don't really see a lot of, you know, CEOs saying like, don't worry, you know, we'll get through this. Like there's not a lot of calming behavior. It's mostly like, yeah, shit's really bad. You know, this is going down. I'm just going to just raid the till on the way out. And, you know, I'll see you on the other end, guys. Goodbye. You know, it's like kind of very just, um, and I think that's part of the angst as well as people are like, man, like, you know, who, who are the people that we can look up to? There's, it's a very short list. I'm curious if you think of anyone that people who are in the EFT universe should look to, because it's, I have a tough time coming up with names. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's actually a really good point. I mean... You, you know, unfortunately, too many of our CEOs that had their great run, made their incredibly graceful exits, could be senior statesmen, 
came back into this and just messed it up, you know? And I'm not going to name any names, but obviously, you know, folks know who I'm talking about. And, and, uh, because it was just so bad. I mean, if this were, you know, college football, I mean, not even Barry Switzer could win in this environment. I mean, we really did have just the massive black swan on so many levels. And so you're right, it, it is really hard because we don't, you know, now that you're saying that, we really don't have a lot in the way of leadership that we can, uh, we can look to. And I've actually felt really bad taking those hundred phone calls, talking to folks, because I don't feel like I have any good words I can give uh, these people that I'm talking to. I, the, the one thing I have done when I have those phone calls, and this is serious, you're going to laugh when I say this, but it is serious. I've actually, I started out with, can you move back in with your parents if all goes bad? And, you know, it's, it, you kind of get a laugh, you get a chuckle and all, but you know, this really is kind of the environment when doing something entrepreneurial makes a lot of sense. I mean, because people say, if you're going to start a, an oil and gas company today, what would you do, Chuck? And I'd say, well, I wouldn't, but you know, if you're going to do it, I mean, this is really the time when somebody goes out and knocks on doors and farmlands in Kansas and buys up a bunch of working interest, or it's somebody that goes and uh, knocks on doors in Colorado, because that might be the ugliest oil and gas environment out there and buys up stuff and, you know, is very disciplined, uses its own money, uses his or her own money. Maybe it's somebody that decides to figure out how to use new technology we have in such a way that they can have a competitive advantage. It was really interesting. One of the one of the large independents that's out there, I'm really good friends with their head of strategy, and we went and had a uh, drink, and we were talking about things, and I was talking about, because I've joined the advisory board at Cottonwood Ventures, so I am not an energy technology guy per se, but I'm kind of being drawn into it, um, and I'd done some of it back at Stevens. 20 years ago when I, before I joined Kane, and I was talking about, well, you know, I'm seeing all this AI they're using to automate lifting and et cetera. And the response was really interesting is yes, a lot of that technology makes a lot of sense. It cut, it cuts costs. We just don't have the people to be able to implement it because you need to have a person, you need to have a person get immersed in it so that they can actually tell the CFO, the COO, hey, here's how we're going to use it. Here's how it works and, and does this. And so that's what my advice winds up being to these people that I have the discussion with. It's go do something entrepreneurial. If you can move back in with your parents, if all, all else fails, well, that's not the end of the world. And because uh, I plan to move back in with my parents before I get another job. This is too cool being unemployed. But really go out and figure out something, some new way to do things, because at the end of the day, I mean, that's the opportunity staring you in the face, because the old model of let's get an engineer, a landman, a geologist together and go get a $500 million equity line of credit from a private equity shop, that's just not happening. And I really do think if you're going to be competitive going forward, 
you have to be able to do something, whether that's a skill, whether that's identifying deals or something, you have to be able to do something that the rest of the market can't do or else you're not going to have a leg up. Yep. Yep. No, totally. I mean, and then there's, there's a million niches in energy, um, as you know, and like just, just because, you know, U.S. onshore shale is just, you know, completely blown, blown up right now doesn't mean there's not a little you know, million different places that, that a young, talented person can jump into right now. I mean, and, and the thing, too, that a lot of these people are in these situations who are calling you need to remember is, you know, they got drawn into energy because energy was a high-paying, growing, you know, extremely competitive, you know, industry. And, and so by virtue of that, it attracted talent. And so by definition, if, you know, a lot of these people feel like it's a game of musical chairs, they don't have a chair, like, they came into the room because they were talented and ambitious. And like, that's, that's point one. Right. And so you just need to channel that into some other, some other category, but yeah, I'm with you. I mean, like it, it, it really, I'm curious to get your view on this because there's a few things that you guys talked about with uh, BRV and Shell Unikitty that I'd love to, to cover. But I mean, I think where the industry stands today, I, I do think, it's going to get significantly better. It can't not get better because, like we said, it's like the worst in the century. I mean, I think there's really no bar lower. So, I mean, at, at some point, it's going to turn. But I, I really do believe, beyond some of the trends you're talking about, we're going to hit another cycle. I mean, I, I think we're coming out of a historic bubble bursting, which I think really what what people don't realize. I think it gets lost in the COVID noise. But, you know, we did live through a bubble. I mean, it had all the hallmarks of that in the shale industry. And it burst. And then, I, and then after it burst, I mean, the city was bombed out. And then it got a nuke dropped on it with, with, with COVID. And it can't not improve. I mean, so much supply is getting just decimated right now. Um, and demand will recover. I mean, everyone, you know, that's the big question. And obviously, there's a timing element to that. But it's going to get better. And so whether it's the, the tech stuff you talked about or, or just playing the cycle, you know, I think being tight, people will be generally pleased. But it can't be the same thing that people did before, like you said. Like you're not going to go do so much acreage and, and sell out of it. Like that model, I think, is challenged and has, has gone by the wayside. Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's not a reason to drill another well in the United States. I mean, I get it. We need to maintain leases, et cetera, and, and the like. But at the end of the day, if we were perfectly rational, we probably wouldn't drill another well in the United States, at least for a while. Because what did we do? We took 15 million barrels offline, 20 million barrels offline, kind of at the height of uh, the COVID. And so we at least know where the first 15 to 20 million barrels of recovered demand are going to come from is turning turning wells back online and OPEC now has, you know, 7 million, 8 million a day reasons to cheat to, uh, to bring it back online. But you're absolutely right. I mean, nothing cures low oil prices like low oil prices. And at the end of the day, it's just not going away. I was doing this for a while because uh, when we were out fundraising, you'd get hit with, oh, electric vehicles are going to take take over. So I got, I made, I gave this speech about five times 
where you get up there and you you I would read headlines from the New York Times. I said, okay, let's start off with some headlines. Electric vehicles poised to take over. Electric vehicles performance so much better than uh than the internal combustion engine. And I read like three or four of them. And then I'd run through all the stats. I'd say there are 300 million internal combustion engines in the United States. And when we look out 10 years from now, you know how many of those are going to be on the road? All of them. I mean, we build really good cars today. So when, you know, when's the last time you ever said, man, that internal combustion engine just doesn't work anymore. I got to get a new car. Never. I mean, you sell your car and you can go buy a Tesla, but at the end of the day, Somebody else is driving that car. And so even if Tesla captures half the market and we sell, you know, 7 million cars a year in the United States, 6 million of them are actually below $40,000 in price. I mean, that's 10 years from now, that's 35 million Teslas out on the road and 335 million internal combustion engines. So it's not it's not going away anytime soon. So I'd rattle through all those stats and the Boeing and Airbus story I told earlier about not having even a patent on an electric plane and how that makes up 21% of demand. That's kind of pre-COVID. And then I'd always say, thank you very much. And I'd kind of get the polite applause and I'd walk two steps off and then I'd come back to the podium and I'd say, oh, by the way, the headlines I read from the New York Times, 1917, 1918, and 1919. This shit's been around for a long time. It's nothing new. So, yeah, we're not going anywhere as, a, as an industry. And if if you love the industry, then you should stay in it. I mean, that's the other thing I say on these phone calls. I'm like, if you love it, I mean, they're no better people. I honestly believe that. There are no better people in the uh, in the world than oil and gas folks. And so you should stay in it. It's just a question of figuring out different way to do something, take a fresh set of eyes to it, figure it out and figure out what your advantage is going to be. And then, and then that's what you can, uh, you can do with it. Yeah. And I completely agree on the electric car point. I mean, it's God, I mean, some of the stuff, I mean, we, we saw so much, it is the thing about energies. We saw so much ridiculous behavior at the peak and we saw all the, you know, kind of, Peak of the market, you know, eight zones, 12 wells per section. We saw all these kind of narratives being spun. And you look at the electric car market today and you're like, yeah, that looks familiar. You know, like the, the way the way things are portrayed and the all these hockey stick kind of projections. I mean, it, it because it's so fresh for all of us, I think you look at it and not only does it feel like an existential threat, it's also like a, a, you're very skeptical by virtue of the fact that you just kind of live through a similar narrative spin which ended up not being true and I, and I think it's crazy to not believe that over time we're going to transition um but you know the other thing all these people cite like electric cars can be cheaper and cheaper and they have but you know an electric car is not a semiconductor you know it doesn't just get massively cheaper due to manufacturing over time you know, it is a car. You know, it fundamentally, it's made of steel and, and a battery and has all these other components. And, you know, you really just think through the logic of it. You're like, listen, if the, the market share is even, you know, 25% of what people are claiming, you know, the price for lithium is going to explode and the price for cobalt is going to explode. And you know, all these components that are just going to go up in price and this whole, you know, it's just going to be so cost competitive. People, you know, just, they won't be able to resist. 
you know, I, I just don't think that's going to play out how people think it's going to play out. And even beyond that, it's just, it's hard to replace a fleet the size of what we have in the U.S. and in other countries, not to mention developing countries, right? So I'm yeah. with you. It's not to say it's not going to sunset. And if I'm 27 looking at the future, I'm going to be thinking about other things because, you know, there's only so many cycles left, but, you know, there's, there's room to run. It's not immediate. It feels like it today and it's in your face every day. But what's happening in the news and what's happening with, you know, the stock prices for Nicola and all these just crazy, you know, EV manufacturers, that is completely, I mean, those companies haven't generated any revenue, right? And so, you know, it's completely t- detached from what's happening on the ground. So people just have to remember that, you know, just have to, have to pause and reflect and say, this is going to take some time. I was writing, I would periodically just kind of write speeches when things would hit me because I'd get stuck having to give a speech here, speech there. And uh, one of the speeches I started writing in January and February that obviously I didn't complete, although uh, I need to go back and check my my, uh, release letter to see if I actually own this or whether Kane Anderson owns it. But the... um, no, the speech I started writing was just looking back at the internet slash technology bubble of the late 90s and early 2000s, because you could run through literally the value, the valuation destruction. I mean, the NASDAQ fell 75%. You know, at one point, there were 44 internet companies worth $15 billion or more. You could tick through all of the venture capital that was destroyed during that period. And it was just horrific. I mean, it was, I don't know if you lived through that. Uh, 90s random consultant thinks you're really, really old. But, uh, but anyway, I don't know if you lived through all that. I mean, the valuation destruction was amazing. And you got the whole thing about the death of technology. But if you strip that aside and just looked at the operating statistics, number of websites, number of e-commerce trades done, if you looked at the speed of broadband, et cetera, I mean, all of that stuff was, was up and to the right. I mean, it was literally doubling kind of every six months, the, the number of you know, Wi-Fi connections you had, et cetera. And so technology didn't die just because a lot, of value, a lot of value was destroyed. In fact, in a weird sort of way, the fact that the value spent so much money laying out broadband, I mean, 90% of all the T1 lines in America were laid during that period with that money. And that made things so cheap that everybody could have a website and you could do e-commerce and the like. I think when we look back at the shale revolution, we're going to see a similar pattern. Just because a lot of value was destroyed, a lot of capital was destroyed, it doesn't mean that the fundamental underlying business went away. I mean, we're still going to use a lot of oil like you and I've been talking about all night. Um, But at the end of the day, I think it was just evaluation and value destroyed, not a fundamental underlying business deciding to go away. Because at the end of the day, I mean, energy is still the second to third largest expense for most companies besides their people. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree on the the bubble analogy, and, and you know, I think I think the tech bubble is a perfect uh, you know parallel. There's so many you can pick from, and you know, I did, but, and, and you know, it was it was a long time ago, or a relatively long time ago, but it had all the hallmarks. Same thing with the financial services bubble in 06, 07, right? Like it all starts with like an idea, right? Some kind of paradigm shift, and in the tech bubble, it was just that was the you know the web coming to coming to be and e-commerce becoming this nascent new thing and, and the financial services bubble of six or seven which was probably even more ingrained in all of our heads um you know the, the great paradigm shift there was everyone needs to own a home right i mean everyone needs to get a mortgage and get everybody so low and so always this 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 thing off and for energy it was you know horizontal drilling there's this brand new technology that Freeing us from foreign oil, and you, you know, you add on top of that, you know, China coming out of 07, 08, running into this huge commodity super cycle. Just you know, I, I don't think people realize how much China bailed out the entire globe in terms of their stimulus in that point of time. It took a lot of commodities to get going, and so you pour that on top of that, and you know this better than anyone. You also had private equity companies, so you have all these like entrepreneurial groups with a lot of capital available that are all of a sudden getting funded by the, the private equity community to test this stuff out. And before you know it, it just, it just explodes and it becomes this boom. It's euphoric. I mean, it just goes through all the stages. I mean, just go Google stages of a bubble and you can literally just, you know, pin, you know, all the different things that energy has gone through over the last decade. Um, to all those stages and, and draw all kinds of parallels. Like you mentioned clicks and website visits. Like how is number of clicks really any different from an IP24, right? Right. At the end of the day, you're taking 24 freaking hours of data and extrapolating 50 years of estimated ultimate recovery reserves. I mean, that's just absurd. But, you know, it's the same concept where you're taking some kind of relatively meaningless but also easily manipulable data and you're, and you're playing it out to, to pump up whatever you want to pump up, you know, selling equity or uh, selling an asset or selling a story. And so there's just so many things that if you really just sat down and, and draw, drew the parallels, it, it's, it's, it's almost perfect. But I don't know about you, I don't, I don't think people, I don't think that's a broadly recognized fact. Like, I don't think people generally view what we live through as a bubble, even though I think it very much was. Like, I think the, the epitaph for shale gets blown up with COVID, but it was really kind of, popping well before that and so that's one big thing that i think people just need to remember and to your point coming out of that there's a lot of great companies and people are going to learn things and amazon went down i forget 95 percent coming out of the tech bubble i mean you know the, the value destruction is probably worse for some companies that ultimately ended up delivering a lot of that's going to be this time around i don't know i'm skeptical it's going to be on short scale but you know there are going to be winners coming out of this for sure you know, it was interesting because uh, I think I'm stealing this from a Wells Fargo Reserve or a research report. And so I'm sure you saw it. But, um, you know, 99 was kind of the year that tobacco, I mean, literally the final final nail was uh, in the coffin on tobacco. It became uninvestable. You're killing people, et cetera, et cetera. No public fund would touch you anymore. And at that point, 
tobacco kind of had to look itself in the mirror and say, we have no more access to capital, et cetera. What do we do? And they really morphed into cutting costs, distributing capital and all. And if, if you look at the asset categories from 99 to 2019, kind of pre-COVID, literally the best performing asset class was tobacco. They were up 10x just because they had no more access to capital. They had to run good businesses, et cetera. And so I think we're kind of staring at that moment in the EMP world is, all right, we've got to run good businesses. We've got to look at every cost. We've got to figure out uh, how we do this, how we send money back to shareholders. Because there is not this magical pot left there anymore. I mean, people keep saying, well, when we get back to 80, we'll get all this money. We can go drill again. I don't think that happens. I really do think we pissed off the world enough that that magic pot of money is not coming back. And so I think we're going to have to figure out how to live within our means. We're going to have to figure out how to create value. And it is a much longer road to hoe to get back in the good graces of investors than I think anyone truly appreciates. And so kind of with that, um, just to make this thing a little more interesting, I'd love to know, Energy Cynic, what PE guy pissed in your Wheaties one morning? What do you have against PE? Man, that's a dangerous topic. I mean, I think first and foremost, I mean, you know, it's not, you got to be careful with broad brush characterizations of people, but, you know, it, it kind of goes hand in hand. It's not just PE. I mean, I think the corporate governance on the public side has been abysmal. Um, and I think it's all just kind of linked together. Um, and I think PE just gets, you know, part of the reason I kind of point to that a little bit more than public stuff, which, which Skilling spends more time on, is because it's just, you know, you don't see it, right? It's kind of in the shadows, but the same value destruction is taking place, um, maybe even more in some cases. And there's even less of an opportunity for accountability because if you think governance is bad for a public company, like, you know, what is governance for a private equity fund? I, you know, I have my suspicions we're invested in several of them, but it's, 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 it's terrible. And I mean, you ultimately think like, well, at least in a public company, you know, you can just say like, well, fuck this, like this whole industry is shit and I'm going to get out of this and just sell my stock. You know, what do you do if you're a private equity investor? And then you think about that, the category of investors is pensions. And, you know, the ultimate people who are taking the hit are people with the least amount of knowledge on it. So it's just, it's the murkiness of it that kind of, I won't say it pisses me off, but it frustrates the shit out of me. I guess that's pissing me off. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very, you know, it, it's just so dark and so messed up. And then the accountability channels are so bad. It just drives me batty. And then you can't not be in this industry and not know a lot of people. Like I said, I used to work in private equity, know a lot of people from my past. You know, you're still plugged in. You're seeing some of the stuff in your portfolio. And you're seeing these, you know, portfolio companies getting just destroyed, you know, fired, all these people losing their jobs. And you're kind of looking at the, the private equity community above that. And it's, it's relatively serene. Um, I mean, I know you, you saw that upfront personal, so you may have a different take, but generally speaking, like I, you know, I can name several partners who torched billions of dollars and are still gainfully employed, making millions of dollars a year. Whereas, you know, 
companies that represented that torch money are just wiped out and those people are just without a job all the way down to like the you know the accounts payable people you know so it's that that dichotomy i don't know what the right way to describe it is that's what kind of drives me crazy and you know within it there's good people there's there are a lot of great private equity investors and um there's a lot of really amazing individuals you know that i know that um but as a category it's been disappointing yeah, no, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, the the defense you hear, or the difference you hear between governance on private equity and then what you hear about public companies is, at least with private equity, you as the investor, when you sign the documents, you know exactly what you've signed up for. You know what the fee schedule is. You know everything else that's going to happen. And at least the problem with the public companies, you don't know. I mean, you get disclosed after the fact. And so you've got a board that's potentially made up with friends of the CEO and the company goes into bankruptcy and all of a sudden there are a bunch of bonuses um, laid out. Um, That being said, um, I do think the limited partner community has more in the way of influence than maybe you appreciate. I mean, because yes, there are bad actors everywhere. I don't mean to imply otherwise, but at the end of the day, I mean, fee reductions happen when performance is not um, necessarily up to par. Um, Capital is given back when opportunities aren't seen there. I mean, I think some LPs would tell you it's more of a negotiation and and a little rougher than it should be. But I I do think I do think that that happens. And at the end of the day, the one nice thing about kind of private equity governance versus public company governance is, yes, public company you can sell, you can move on. Private equity you don't sign up for the next fund. And the second you don't sign up for the next fund, the firm is over, you know? So I'm not trying to be too big a homer to defend my brethren because, I mean, come on. All of us have, uh, all, all, all of us know there are folks out there that push the system and the like, and there are certainly, uh, certainly private equity funds that you're just going, oh, my gosh, how do they have the gall to do that? But there's more of that than I think think uh you get credit for certainly out on EFP. Nice try, Chuck. <laughs> Why don't you go back to uh drinking that Bjorn 2009? <laughs> um yeah, no, I mean that's fair, I guess. I mean, you just have an agency problem, right? I mean, like the person signing up for these funds from what I've seen um, and where the unique things are. But I mean, it's usually just some middle management person, right? I mean, the ultimate person who is going to take the loss is, is someone who's not in the room. And, you know, for that reason, like, you're right, like, you know, maybe people get ornery about fees, but there's really no incentive to, right? And, and it's also hard to organize. Um, and so, I don't know. It, it, 
you know, the whole, the whole, the whole fact that you can mark your own book. I mean, there's, there's so many things in the EFT community. There's a lot of private equity people, I think. And at one, one point is the gentleman's 1.2X, which is right. something, I mean, it's just hilarious. I forgot who, I think it was unquantifiable upside in coin the curve or something like that. And, you know, for people who aren't familiar with that, I mean, you know, if you're a private equity fund, you mark your own book to share with your investors and, you know, Kind of like giving yourself your own grade. It's like, ah, you know, I'm you know, really good at calculus this semester. I'm a little paunchy, athletic, so I'm going to give myself a B minus. But, you know, it's all kind of whatever. I mean, you, you and I both know it's like a little bit soft. And, and I think the gentleman's 1.2x comes from like, you know, you have a story bombing out of the whole sector. The valuation is just imploding. And you get your quarterly report, and you're like, okay, let's see what's going on. This is going to be ugly. You're like, oh, we went from 1.2 to 1.1. You know, it's just, <laughs> like, it's just like, it's I think it's stuff like that um, that that really irks me. And then, yeah, I mean, it's it's just this this two world system um, that you see where you know you, you know better. I mean, the smash codes is the term that gets thrown around and. And all these kind of mergers and portfolio companies. At the end of the day, like part of the appeal of private equity too is that you have control, right? Like that was that's the pitch is that you know we're going to give you a more defined investment that we we control the board, everything is in our control, and so you know we're on board with every decision. Um, and despite that, you know, and it's the thing. I'm like you, get, you kind of look around, you start seeing bodies stacked up. It's not private equity bodies, um, which you know. It is what it is, but um, I think that's another thing that really gets to a lot of people. And I think, I mean, Shale Unity was harping on it pretty hard. Um, I might have been between his ninth and tenth or twelfth White Claw, but, you know, it, it, it's a really tough system for people because at the end of the day, you know, you enforce G&A cuts or you lay off a whole company of people because an asset underperformed, you know, you're... I've, I've said this before, like, you know, you've got accountants losing their jobs and then they have no alternative. And these are people that are making, you know, 60, 70K a year. And, and you know, it's, they've been doing well for the last decade and, and they're getting blown out. And you know, the ultimate people who, who are on the board who made the decisions are kind of are kind of safe. And if, if not safe, you know, still, still making a ton of money. And so it's stuff like that where you're just like, okay, this is, this is a little absurd. We're going to call this out, but you know, like you said, I mean, there's there's reasons it exists, how it exists, and I recognize that. I think people should recognize that, but it doesn't mean that we can't be softer with it. it doesn't mean that uh, I think we all want you know people in the private equity community to step up a little bit more and be like, listen, we get it. This is absurd, you know, and, and we're going to do something to try to address that. So I think that's if there's a goal to the criticism, I think that would be it. And I, you know, and I think that's fair. Um, I think when you had private equity funds marking their equity at an uplift, when the debt associated with those companies was trading at a discount to par, I mean, come on. You know, I mean, that's, you know, making the story that, well, I can buy the debt back in cheaper. That means my equity's worth more. I mean, that's BS. And that, that's a fair criticism. Um, I'll tell you my view of LPs is they were a lot more skeptical of that. So I don't know that 
the gentleman's 1.2 really influenced folks as much as someone might think. I think where that actually becomes a true issue is when you get into the point of the fee structure when you're paying fees on dollars invested, lower of dollars invested or fair market value of the assets and and I'll tell you, you know, my experience there is at the end of the day, LPs are pretty critical there, you know, in terms of focusing on come on, you're not really worth x, blah 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 and uh and the like but now i think a lot of what you just said about private equity is fair because at the end of the day you're right we control the board we're making the decisions you know the fact not to uh sell for 1.5 times your money because you're holding out for a 2x for whatever reason and you should have taken the 1.5 because um I said this on the last podcast with BRV and Kitty. I mean, I think we as an industry just way oversold and, you know, pot calling kettle black right here. Um, you know, we way oversold our ability to generate alpha in this business, particularly with the scale of dollars that we had to try to do that. And we just way undersold the effects of the beta and what was going to happen on our companies, our projects and the like when oil prices went down. Because at the end of the day, I mean, if you really look back from sort of 2004, it's basically $100 oil going to $35 oil. And any investment thesis, shale or the otherwise would fail in that scenario. And we just way undersold one, the ability of that to happen. Now, granted, we didn't see a virus coming that was going to cause a pandemic and shut down the world. But at the same point, I think it's fair to say, you know, hey, back in 2017, maybe you should have seen that we've got enough oil here. And at the end of the day, the way the public companies are going to keep spending, it's capped at 50. It's just not going much higher. So I, I do think a lot of the criticism's fair. Yeah, I mean, you said something about, I mean, <laughs> the words you used in the last podcast were chasing alpha is fucking ludicrous, which I thought was a great statement. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I think there's something to that. I mean, I totally get the the oil price coming from 100 bucks to 35 but, you know, the energy industry is a wide. I mean, I think part of the problem, and this is not a private equity problem, this is just a U.S. oil industry problem, is everyone with just long, shale acreage period right including every private equity guy every public company and and where i'm going with that is like well uh, you know maybe there is alpha in the sense that like when everyone else was just kind of deep shit in the permian or wherever you know maybe the move was to be buying you know buying gas right which is what you have going through its own shit fest in the corner and and now it looks like people are getting upbeat about it again right like there's always a place you can kind of shift to so it's funny when I, I was thinking about that and I was like, beta is important um, and a huge driver, but you know, part of the appeal, particularly private equity, is that you know, you're long duration, you can suffer through a cycle, um, you have you know, you have a lot of capital available, so you can kind of keep things alive so you can get to the other side. And it's funny, like you look at it, and 
I think the tools are there to do it right. Now, I don't have an example of that. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, I'm like, oh, I think you can generate alpha in private. I was like thinking about it, and I was like, I can't really name any people who have. But, but I can name investments that have, you know, I think you can too. Like, there's probably a, a few dozen investments that you can point to that are probably going to do just fine, even stuff that was invested in the last five years. And so it's possible. But I think the real problem, and tell me if I'm off here, but, you know, you also have the private equity industry scaling, um, you know, scaling fund size into a, a, a massive super cycle, right? Like, you know, it kind of comes to be in the early 2000s, kind of when I was playing in it. And, you know, it's just kind of growing and growing and growing. And then, you know, everyone's getting bigger and bigger funds because it's hard not to admit that the fee streams attached to these things are huge. And, you know, you want to be a super successful private equity person from a you know, five hundred million dollar fund size to a five billion dollar fund size, and you're basically doubling down with each fund into a cycle, and so by definition, you're your biggest bet, and you hit a cycle, and you get crushed, and then you hit the like mother of all cycles, which is what we're doing right now, and you, know, so you do wonder. It's like, well, if someone again, I can't point to anyone who did this, but. If someone got started early and just kind of plodded along and said, I got billion dollar fund after billion dollar fund, or whatever the number was, and it was a little bit more artful on how they managed this, could they have been the outlier? I don't I don't think maybe. And I don't know if you have a view on that, but well, I mean, I think I think what uh what people would say was that was Ellie Simmons at SCF. I mean, Ellie always kind of capped fund sizes. And played with smaller funds because he felt like he the opportunities were better. And I don't know his returns. I've never been an LP there, but at least that's kind of the feedback you heard from um, from investors was you know Ellie just kind of always managed the size. You know the other thing that was tough, and um, this is what I kind of struggled with looking at it is. You know, we kept talking about the fund size getting bigger and all that. If you looked at when I joined Kane, which was right at the end of Energy Fund One, our average well cost six hundred thousand dollars to drill. It was a vertical with a one-stage frack. Um, you know, at the end, you're drilling a ten million dollar well. It's got ninety-two stages in the frack and the like, and you paid whatever you paid for the acreage. And so to some degree, just the cost of poker went up because of the concentration issue. And you're sitting there going, all right, well, you know, if every fund should be 12 to 15 companies, how much does a company need? Well, back in you know, 2001, when I joined Kane, 20, 30, 40 million dollars might be appropriate to be able to play. It would have been foolhardy to try to lease acreage and drill one test well, because that's about what $40 million would get you. Because I'll tell you this, every first well we drilled, even Silver Hill, which was, you know, one of the best deals we ever did, you couldn't tell anything from that first well. And uh, so, you know, on one hand, I get the whole point, you're getting a bigger bigger fund, you get more in the way of fees, but the price of poker just to play the game went up dramatically. And I think the other thing that happened too during that P2 
period, and again, I don't want to sound too much like a homer for the oil and gas private equity world, but you know, you went into a period where institutions, endowments, pension funds said, we want, let's make up a percent, 10% of our portfolio allocated to energy. And that's just a lot of money. When you look across all the pension funds, all the endowments in America and the like. And so even though energy is way underperformed, if you look at the portfolios of all of these entities, they've actually done really well versus kind of historical norms. If you want to measure returns against, you know, the stock market, returns against debt and the like. And I think at least part of it, and we can probably have some EFT guys out there that are quant jocks go crunch these numbers, but I mean, Amazon went on its run because oil was at 40. I mean, the reason they can deliver at home and the reason they can move products overnight all around the country is because of lower energy prices. If oil had been at $100 and I'd have been throwing up 3X funds all during that period, I guarantee you Amazon would not have run like it had. Apple would not have run like it had because at the end of the day, Apple's got to move its products all across uh, America. It takes a lot of energy to build iPhones and the like. And so I think at least part of the 90% of the portfolio that wasn't energy performed really well because of the low energy prices we generated for folks. Because we were, I mean, take, take away, did we generate returns for people and did we make money? We did some really great things in terms of lowering energy costs in the world. And so I think that's, that's a, uh, another thing that I think gets missed, particularly, and you know, I hate to talk bad about EFT, but I think it gets missed on EFT that ultimately these investors had a portfolio. They made a very rational choice to have certain percentages here and there. And for the most part, their, their portfolios have performed really well despite energy, but I can't help believe that energy, low energy prices wasn't part of that performance. Yeah, I mean, like, I can see that argument. I, I think it's interesting. Hey, I, I believed it the whole time I was saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, effectively, yeah, what you're saying is like basically like our investor dollars subsidize you know, cheaper oil and gas prices, which just benefited, you know, benefits manifested themselves in other ways, which probably true, but it's also kind of belies the point that we were making earlier on this thing being a little bit of a distorting effect on the supply curve for oil, right? Like, you know, you had all this capital being force-fed into the system, right? It's kind of from private equity, like you said, where people are like, you know, I want to get 10% allocated to energy, is coming from the public equity markets, from the credit markets, and just left and right capital just flooding into this massive growth um, in the oil and gas industry driven by shale. Um, and unlike other bubbles, like we were talking about the bubble concept earlier, you know, the tech bubble, like valuations can go just explosive in, in, in like whatever, in, in stock prices. But that's just 
unmoored from reality, right? Like it doesn't really manifest itself on the ground. Um, with energy, it's different, right? Because you have this insane bubble and those dollars get put in the ground. And to your point, like they, they depress prices. But, you know, it kind of goes back to that other point, like just because the, the, the I guess the LPs are kind of force feeding, you know, the system, you know, the question becomes as a private equity investor or any investor, I mean, if dollars are available, do you take them to take them or do you, you know, do you let the investment drive your decision? And I think that probably is, is the driver of a lot of the criticism of private equity is that at the end of the day, it's a different business from the oil and gas business. It is, it is a, it is a fundraising business, right? And so the answer if you're in the private equity community is, Take the freaking money because that's your business. But you know, the answer is like a, just a straight, pure oil and gas investor, which again doesn't really exist. You know, the answer is, well, I'm, I'm just going to wait until I see the right investment opportunity. And you see it happening again, not to jump around, but I mean, look at all the energy transition pivots, right? Like people are trying to raise money in that category. I don't think because they think they can make money in that category. I think they, they, they're raising money there because money is available in that pocket and, and it's more of an existential decision. Um, existential. I, no, I think you're, I think you're exactly right there. I mean, that's one of the things that I've told myself is I never want to work for a money management firm. When you view the monthly financials and it's your profit and loss as a money management business versus okay, we invested money and what did we get? You know, are people making money and the like? Uh, I agree with you 100% there because I, I do think too many people sit around and view themselves as a money management firm and not quote-unquote investors. And so I've, I've kind of said that to myself that no matter what happens to me the rest of, uh, rest of my career, I am never going to work for a money management firm because at the end of the day, I do think you're right. You know, incentives get distorted when it's, oh, I can take this money and I can go invest in energy transition because my two cents worth looking at that is way more money chasing the number of opportunities that are truly out there. And to the extent all the money that wants to invest in that space, gets invested. I mean, we're not even talking series A level risk. We're talking pre-series A level risk in terms of real venture type stuff's going to get invested in. And that's just the toughest thing to invest in out there. So I agree with you there a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's 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 it goes back to our leadership point with earlier. I mean you, you just kind of want people to say, you know what, I'm tempted to do that, but you know Fuck it, like the, 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 we screwed this up, but we're gonna, I hate to say double down if you don't wanna have your head in the sand, but like there, there are gonna be opportunities coming out of the traditional business. And like, it, it's a kind of time to lean in, not a time to, to bail. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a little discouraging. I think the hard thing is like the people you see doing the big pivots, and it's just a lot of press to it. So I think there's more people are sticking to their knitting and trying to find good opportunities in traditional oil and gas, and I think we give credit for it because we see more news and how many people just go crazy on 
some of these energy transition funds and all these different you know vehicles that people are investing through but i don't know i think i think people know deep in their hearts that like you know if i have a fund with capacity in in the traditional energy space i should be trying to find a way to invest because if, if you believe everything we're saying here it's it's setting itself up like we talked about earlier for a hell of a cycle so I think people need to get into that for sure yeah it has to so what's the what's this guy's name that has all this fact that's totally scared to death of you? <laughs> you know, Chamath, I can't pronounce the guy. Paolo, I can't pronounce the last name. I have no idea how to pronounce it. Um, you know, it's funny. I just followed him. I mean, he's been on CNBC. You know, the SPAC thing has just gotten out of control. It's pretty remarkable. You know, if you really want to understand it, you can read a million tweets on it. I have a couple that are pinned, but yeah, this guy is like the the poster child of what's wrong with the the, the model. You know, he's just kind of doing serial stacks. I mean, all IPO A, IPO B, IPO C, IPO D. This guy's just you know pumping up these stacks. Which for people who are listening, who don't know what SPAC is, basically pools of capital that you raise from a bunch of hedge funds or whoever. And, you know, it's just basically a search fund, I guess, is the way you describe it. And the incentive to raise it for, you know, this gentleman um, is a giant promote on the front end if he finds a deal. And so, you know, there's all these stats flying around. And, and what's that disappointing to me about it? It's like, come on, man, like, there's so many. And it goes back to our earlier point. Like, they're not... It's not like they're finding like, some great deal. They're like, I'm going to go raise money for this deal. It's like, no, I'm just going to go raise money because I can. And I'll figure it out. And worst case, like I find a shitty deal. I'm just a shitty deal. If it goes down 50%, who cares? You know, I still get this huge promote. Like, the incentives are just so messed up. Um, it's, it's just, you know, it's almost like a key ingredient for a frenzy. And I, I think it's just bad for the tech industry, which is going through its own frenzy right now. Yeah, no, it was kind of crazy because uh, SPACs and it stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company or Corporation. And they were originally pitched as the democratization of venture capital, right? We're going to bring venture capital to the masses, these great deals done in private equity. We're going to let public investors do it. And the whole setup was we go raise this money, the money sits on the balance sheet of this publicly traded company, and then when we go find a deal to buy, the shareholders get to vote on it. And it really isn't fundamentally any different than a regular S1 IPO process, right? Because the the you've got to when you when a SPAC buys something, it's got to go file the S4, which no different really than an S1. It gives the investors all the information, and then they need to um, then they need to vote on whether they want to do the deal or not. And you know, I'm actually really cynical on SPACs because I think it was at least originally set up by investors private equity, venture capital type investors to really be the way that we get the banks to stop charging us 7% for an IPO. Instead, we're going to make them pay, you know, we're going to pay 2.5% or 3%. 
And then if we're able to successfully despackify, i.e. buy an asset or buy a company, then we'll pay them a little bit more. I think it was actually set up by the investing community to try to get banking fees down. And then the flip side is the bankers almost turned it against venture capital funds and private equity funds and said, hey, guys, we're just going to go do a whole lot of these. And instead of you guys getting to invest in these companies, they're going to go public through these SPACs. So I think it's been kind of a, a pissing match between the investing community and the investment banks that take people public. But you're right. I mean, if you dig into the returns, it's it's ridiculous. I think the average IPO, um, traditional IPO, S1 process that folks go through versus SPAC returns is like minus 18% delta. So, I mean, SPACs just perform horribly over time. And it's exactly what you said. I mean, whoever sponsors the SPAC, all they did was put up the money to pay for the fees, but they get, you know, whatever the promote is, 20% of the ups if a deal gets done. So all they've got to do is go convince investors that this is a good deal. And it's just been a mess. So I'm I've been shocked at the number of SPACs that have been done. Well, it's so crazy is that we had so many. I mean, everyone who does some digging in energy SPACs, I mean, we all know the names of some of the Alta Mesa. Jesus. I mean, just unbelievable stuff. Um, and they've all, you know, not all of them, but I mean, they've, they've mostly imploded. I mean, if you took the rate of return that you said, I mean, negative 18% sounds fucking fantastic compared to what I, in my head, I think it should be for the energy SPACs as a category. And like, I think it's a leading indicator. Like we went through our boom, we did our SPACs, you know, some people did great for like 10 minutes and, and then they all imploded and there's a couple of them still hanging around. Amazingly, there's, there's still a couple of them hanging, hanging around and, um, they're just, they're, they're kind of set up to fail because of these misaligned incentives. Now, I think. There's legitimate specs out there. To, you know, again, you can't paint them all with a with a broad brush. And there's some people who are doing them who are legitimate investors who are just doing what's right for their their you know shareholders or whatever. But you know, you, you can't not notice a list of people raising specs in the summer of 2020 and be like, this is like a fucking Star Wars cantina of just aliens, weird people like you know, <laughs> brother. And a guy from Moneyball. I mean, you just every. I mean, it was every day. It was a new Paul, Paul Ryan has a spec. I mean, oh, you know. yeah, sponsored by Mitt Romney's family office. You just, and you're just like, wow, and and it just goes on and on. It just doesn't end. Like every, you know, you're like, well, that's they can't get any more stupid than that. And then like next day, it's another fucking spec, and it just got to a point where it just got so absurd. And you know, what's what's silly about it, even beyond the alignment issues that will probably lead to a lot of problems, um, which of course this guy, the Silicon Valley guy, didn't want to debate. I mean, he kind of just, you know, I slapped him a little bit with a, with a tweet like I do sometimes. And he was like, I show your work. And, you know, I just, it, he just really didn't know who he was tangling with. So I just started like throwing him around and he kind of headed for the hills, like you said, but I mean, these guys know what they're doing, you know? I mean, I think fundamentally deep down, everyone knows what they're doing. It's clearly there, um, and it's kind of poorly. But what's so depressing about it, that, you know, it's 2020, 
in the middle of a freaking pandemic, you know, like everyone's locked in their houses and there's nothing about this year that has made sense to me. I don't know about you, but, um, you know, the stock market also highs. It just, you know, what the f- come on. But in the middle of all these things, this group of people, you know, all these characters we just talked about, you know, instead of like helping their common man, you know, I don't know, just stepping up a little bit, you know, being, you know, taking a leadership role in some way, you know, they decided like, no, I'm going to do, I'm going to raise a SPAC. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to go raise a SPAC. That's weird structure. I mean, that's, that to me, you know, not to be overly principled, like I'm, I'm an imperfect person, but and I both know, like, everyone raising these things is already extremely wealthy for the most part, right? And so it's like, really? That's what you're going to do? This, you know, it just, it just rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, no, that was actually one of the biggest compliments that I got um, out on Twitter. And it wasn't you that, uh, that, that, uh, <laughs> said it oh no no it actually was you that said it it was part of that it was part of that whole rant you uh you had about me you said because one of my lps actually said i don't get the fascination with chuck yates what are you know why is why is everybody talking about him on twitter and uh you actually tweeted back he hangs with jewel but that's it (laughs) and i was like yeah true enough and he goes and then Voted most likely in the energy business to wake up in a bathtub full of uh, ice with one kidney, but to his credit, he didn't sell out and do a SPAC. <laughs> so, credit where it's due. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. The, uh, the, uh, yeah, no, because I mean, you know, at the end of the day, this, yeah, this, the SPAC thing's just, I, I, it makes sense. When you have an avenue to see certain deal flow that's outside your parameters, but you get to see those deals and you need a different type of capital source to potentially access that. But anytime you're getting an upfront promote, those are usually bad. I mean, you just, you, you, the promote structure needs to be that when the investors get their money back and some sort of return, you know, then being we'll we'll back into the profits. And that that would make it, I think, a a better, more fair type system. So this guy won't won't uh won't debate you? Yeah, I guess not. I mean I'm I'm thinking about taking it to the next level. I'm not sure how I'm gonna do that. Um if I taunt him again at some point. Um I don't know, I might write out some of this stuff, but yeah, I mean he's I mean, you saw, I mean, I said, okay, I'll, I'll debate you in some format. Um, and he just kind of disappeared. And it's funny, if you go check him out, it's like right now he's on a campaign. I guess CNBC is always pumping him up, which is its own ridiculous, you know, whatever. CNBC just all the worst shit, I feel like it's pumped on there. And I guess they are, you know, maybe they said something in to pissed him off. I don't know what it is, but all of a sudden he's like, you know what, I want to host my own Q&A sessions, not on CNBC. You know, I don't want them asking me questions. So clearly, I think he's probably under some heat. And I don't think he probably wants to have this conversation. But whatever. I mean, you know, that's the great thing about Twitter is you can kind of keep poking people and until they block you or, um, you know, whatever escalated, you know, you can kind of always be there as a voice, which is, you know, I've got, I got a lot of DMs. And I, it, it kind of freaked me out because after we had that back and forth, you know, some of his investors in the SPACs, I think, 
DM me. Like, oh, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I'm not going to like go through these long explanations. You can see for yourself with what we posted. But, you know, you start understanding the mentality of these people. They're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I invested in Nikola. And that one was really cool. And I made a bunch of money. And so maybe you're right. Maybe I should like put like a little bit less money in the next one. Like, no, how about you just try none? You know, like, <laughs> And, and like, it's, you start going into the mentality of some of these people and you're just, oh my God, you start to get a sense for who's buying this shit. And um, it's, it's, it's a little bit scary, you know? And so you, you try to, your best to like guide them, but not be, you know, too disrespectful. Be like, oh, you'll be okay. You know, maybe, maybe you should think about selling Nicola, but whatever, you know, don't, you know, don't do it just because I said so. Um, but there's, there's just, there's a lot of knowledge that just doesn't get, obviously to the retailing world and i don't know anything we can do to like accelerate that i think is a net positive for society but as you know it's all on the margin like no one no one's really going to change their behavior because a handful of retail investors are, are more informed than others so it's kind of yelling in the wind but whatever it's fun i don't know man anytime you get a chance to invest in a car company whose biggest video is the car actually rolling down a hill, you kind of got to do it, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, but that one came out. I got to be honest, I I was critical because I went and like Google the founder, and you just go to the Wikipedia page. It's just basic shit, and and you go read his bio. It's like the guy worked as a contractor, and then you know he was one semester at Grand Valley University in Utah. You know, it dropped out, and you're just like, this doesn't add up. This is weird. You know, like this guy is running a $27 billion electric company. What? Um, <laughs> I started asking questions, but I'll be honest, like I didn't short it or I didn't, I didn't really act on it because different people, you know, who I respect on Twitter are like, oh, you know, he's, he's engaging and he's being thoughtful about how he's portraying the company. So I was like, all right, you know, whatever. Um, Maybe, maybe I'm, you know, being too hard on the guy and then just, you know, whatever, the report comes out, the whole thing implodes in 15 minutes. And, you know, I mean, the best part about it, I don't know if you looked at the financial statements, but the only revenue they generated from this company was like the revenue derived from installing solar panels on one of the C-suite guys' house. Like, I mean, he paid like a reimbursement, you know thousand dollars i mean that was it like, that's the only revenue the company's ever and the, generated and they were late installing it right i mean it was <laughs> it was like four weeks late and you're like going this is the only thing this company wow. has going on so yeah no it's uh it's crazy how the public market has decided it wants to uh play venture capital on on these things but you know at the end of the day it's uh it's been a wild year I mean, there's no question that uh, that 2020 has been crazy. So, Energy Cynic, we always close each podcast with five questions. The five questions. I like where this went. Let's do this. The five questions. Let's actually create the action items here. Let's lay out the plan and figure out who's in charge of what. So, number one, question one, who's the committee that comes up with public company governance? Oh, man. Skilling, skilling, and skilling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think Stealing is the Godfather. I mean, he's got to be on there. He's been pointing out the stuff more than anyone. Um, you know, I'm always happy to, to to chase that down. OMG credit is just you know the old hand. Um, but I mean, shit, a lot of people could do it. But I think those are some good names to start with. I like it. All right. So skilling, ONG credit, you, you're going to come back with, is it fair to ask for a 10 point plan? (laughs) We could do that. We can come up with something like that. All right. We got a 10 point plan. All right. So who, question two, who are we going to put in charge of the governance, accountability, the we're watching your shit, we're on this, don't screw up for private equity. Who's doing that? I nominate BRB. I ah, I like that. Unity. I mean, they've already kind of set themselves up as a duo. So, Although, here's what I think we have to do on that, and uh, maybe we don't, like, publicly tell him this or the like, but, you know, if he's going to write 90 pages on whiting, he can give us 15 on private equity, right? <laughs> oh, that's definitely the case. There Although, it was a group, right? So, I mean, he's already got like a mini, mini consortium who wrote the whiting report, so maybe those guys can all do it. The cabal. We'll put the cabal together to, uh, to do private equity. All right. Question three. We're, we're handling the public company CEOs. We're handling the private equity guys. Number three, who's going to be in charge of the commercial banks to say, fucking stop loaning 70% of PDP PV10? Do we need anyone to put that, to be put in charge of that at this point? <laughs> okay, maybe. We'll just self enforce that, maybe. Okay. Uh, Maybe that's fair. Maybe that's fair. Already been done. (laughs) Already been done. So question four, as we're coming up with our list of people to help govern the industry and go, go forward. um, Who's our ray of sunshine? I mean, who is our optimist? Who are we putting in charge of, you know, the sun will come out. Tomorrow, tomorrow. Who's that person? Uh, I mean, Chuck, I think you self-nominated yourself with that little ditty you just did. <laughs> God, we should aspire to more. When I'm your ray of hope, we're host. Oh, maybe you, maybe that's one for the, the non-anonymous accounts. Um, because, you know, the anonymous guys tend to be the Check posters and enforcers, and maybe you, DRW, you know, he's got his podcast, I and mean, maybe you guys can. And Pickering, we'll write, we'll wrote Dan yeah. into there. All yeah. right, we're the Ray of Hope Committee. I, I love that. This is coming from the man who voted me the most likely in energy to wake up in a bathtub full of ice with one kidney. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, oh, yeah. I love you before, Chuck. You know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure it hadn't happened. I, I look back periodically <laughs> for scar marks. Oh, okay, wasn't that bad a night? And I'm still got my kidneys. I like that. So, question five: As we're laying out how we're changing the world and how we're coming through all this, 
what in the hell are we going to do with quick draw? <laughs> you got to have them on the podcast, man. Yeah. <laughs> You need to have liberal representation. Um, you need to get someone from the Northeast. We got to have diversity of thought. Um, so get him on here. Um, I think he'd be a fun, a fun one to have a conversation with. And, and my respect goes to him as well. So, but you know, once he's on here, I mean, I don't know. I can't promise what's going to happen after that to you, like oh, uh, in terms <laughs> of the community response. But I don't know. He'd be a good one. That's awesome. Good deal. Well, Energy Cynic, you are very awesome to have come on tonight. I really enjoyed this. It's uh it's cool getting to uh getting to visit with you because it's it's always fun, you know, tweeting back and forth, but uh getting a whole, you know, hour and a half, two hours with you is awesome. Yeah, that was my pleasure. Thanks for doing it. It was a little bit more uh serious. I probably should have drank a little bit more. Um but you know, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I'm glad we went down some of these rabbit holes and love to do it again. But yeah, no, thanks for doing this, Chuck. It's fun. It's fun getting all the anonymous counts on here and getting the voice. And I think everybody appreciates what you're doing. So now it was uh it was very cool. We do have to close this though with um I don't know what caused you on June thirtieth to just rank because you and I had not been going back and forth on Twitter or anything, but you just randomly tweeted out a guy who took a bunch of condoms, taped them together, and created a shirt out of it. And he had blue jean shorts on it that were hanging down so that you could actually see that he was wearing a thong. And you tweeted that picture out and you said, you know, I saw a nimble fatty in Colorado. And the weirdest, scariest thing about that is I was actually in Colorado at the time. And so I was just, I was like going, oh my God. Fortunately, the picture was not me, but. Uh, <laughs> I'll be honest, Chuck, I saw that picture and for whatever reason, I instantly thought of you. I think it was the thong and the whole, the whole roast experience, but um, I was like, man, I mean, this one's got to go out there. And uh, yeah, the fact that you were actually in rural Colorado was definitely a little weird. Um, I think that's what we call serendipity in the business. But um, yeah, that was that was a great moment. <laughs>